from the media. You, if even in my case, we cannot process anything towards views from the from the policeman. I don't think other citizens or other peaceful demonstrators they can be protected by the legal system. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. The Chinese stock bounce is seen to be short-lived as the PBOC's easing history defies bulls. The CBRC moves on shadow banking and Iran may propose an OPEC cut, an open cut of one million barrels per day in talks with Saudis later this week. Today on Money for Nothing, we'll talk to our international economics correspondent Barry Wood about the upcoming OPEC meetings later this week. We'll also be joined by Joe Hall of Toys R Us to talk about their commitment to Operation Santa Claus. And Alan Daglish of Unrev will throw light on the reporting standards of regional real estate funds. And Alex Wong joins us as guest host this morning. Good morning, Alex. Let's take a look at uh, today's top stories. China's central bank surprised the world by cutting interest rates for the first time since 2012. The question is, why has China done this now? Atlantic Council senior fellow Jamie Metzel says it's because they're really worried. There are big tailwinds on the global economy and on China's economy. She mentioned the slowdown in China. We also have the recession in Japan, uh, the listing of the European economies. And these guys are really worried because they have a political problem. China needs economic growth to provide legitimacy uh, for the, the Communist Party. And they're trying to steer a little bit of slower growth to, to revamp the economy and rebalance things and reform. But every time when there starts to be uh, headwinds, uh, then they, they panic a little bit, and that's what's happening now. So that you're seeing a plus up in the short term, but for the long term, for China's much needed, more needed efforts to reform itself, this is a worrying sign. The move triggered a rally late last week in Chinese stocks trading overseas, which suggests that the equity markets will soar when markets open in Shanghai today. But Jamie Metzel says that in the short term, this will boost not just global markets. Uh, well, certainly uh, commodity prices and countries that are commodity producers uh, certainly benefit. Manufacturing companies, people who are exporting into China are benefit- benefiting in the, uh, in the short term. And Chinese state-owned enterprises that are having the massive debt problems that, uh, that Nia just mentioned, they're going to benefit because uh, China is, has the potential, the danger of a debt crisis, and they're constantly needing to roll over the debt, and more credit will make that a little bit easier. But analysts are worried that the gains probably won't last long. More than anything, the rate cut underscores concern that a slowdown in China is deepening. And even though the PBOC says that rate cuts are designed to help small firms rather than be seen as all-out monetary policy, in the long term, China is a worry. It needs to undergo both political and economic reform. Alex, what is your take on all of this? Well, I think, first of all, um, today, where they probably will be short-lived, I think last... uh Towards the end of last week, we are seeing some um, buying already. So probably we will see some um, profit taking by those uh, who acted earlier last week. But I think uh, 
um, in the longer term, of course, China's economy is in a, is not in a good shape. But um, I think probably people expect uh, this move uh, would be continued. Actually, in uh, 2012, we have seen um, another way cut in after one month of the first way cut. So I think probably we would ex- people would expect China to do a series of things uh, later on. So that would continue to support the market for a while. So rate cut, perhaps after rate cut, is what we're looking at. You know, according to the National Bureau of Statistics, China's official growth rate is around about 7%. But many, of course, are alleging that this figure is dubious. Certainly now this recent rate cut uh, seems to support that notion. Um, the IMF has a formula showing that growth is somewhere near 2.2%. Um, Uwe Parpart of the Reorient Group said on this program a few weeks ago that the growth they, they expected the growth to be somewhere around 4%. What do you think, Alex? Well, yeah, I think uh, people actually usually um, expect China figures to be inflated. I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, actually... Uh, we have to worry that because uh, we worry about the, the, the profitability of corporates in China because the uh, RMB had been rising and interest rate had been stay, had stayed high for quite some time. I've, uh, even though if if we are seeing uh, 7% growth, actually corporates are not operate at a very healthy level. So I've, that I would uh, deter the long-term prospect anyway. So if we do see, as you suggest, uh, happened last time in 2012, another rate cut maybe in a month or so after this one, and we see uh, stock markets react favorably as a result of that, what you're saying is we shouldn't be fooled. Uh, yeah, I think uh, this this strength probably would sustain would be sustained for some time. Uh, probably one month or, or or even a quarter. But in the longer run, uh, profitability remains a concern. Uh, and unless we are seeing some healthy sign like uh, uh, SOE cutting debt or, or or profitability improve, otherwise I think uh, we should not be too 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 bullish on China. So uh, another move that China appears to be moving on is shadow banking. The the China Banking Regulatory Commission yesterday pitched one of the most aggressive measures to date aimed at reining in the shadow banking industry. The potential change uh, is currently in a draft form on which the regulatory body is seeking uh, public comment. And what it's aiming to do is bring in many off-balance sheet assets onto the books for accounting purposes. Alex, your thoughts? Well, that would be a, a very um, serious step, actually, because uh, if you if you um, bring in those uh, off-balance sheets uh, activities, that means uh, we are seeing a very huge uh, deleveraging later on. So I think that, that that's why we need more recon, actually, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, uh, central bank policies certainly are, appear to be everybody's favorite topic these days, uh, perhaps because their actions are really quite confusing. BlackRock uh, chief investment strategi- uh, strategist, excuse me, uh, Jeffrey Rosenberg, footnotes Jefferson Airplane in a lyrical way to uh, sort of analyze, look at, and bring together central bank policies. He says, uh, one pill makes you larger, one pill makes you small, and the one that mother gives you don't do anything at all. So I guess the question is then, who got what pill? The smaller is, is the Fed, larger is, is Japan, and the, and the ones that mother gives you that don't do anything all, that's reference to the ECB, because they haven't been able to grow their balance sheet. That's why the speech this morning is so important. That's why it's moving markets, because he's really laying down the gauntlet. He's saying, look, we're going to do, he said it before, he doesn't say it this way, but he said, we're going to do whatever it takes. He's backing that up, that they're going to do what they have to do, which okay. is buy sovereign bonds to expand their balance sheet. 
So clearly then, monetary policy appears to be far from over. Here's what Charles Schwab's Jeffrey Kleintop has to say. Certainly, policy is still booming around the world. In fact, fiscal policy is even turning more positive now as you take a look at the uh, spending programs that we're going to see in Japan, maybe some of the uh, 300 uh, billion euro program of spending that they might uh, invoke in the eurozone. So actually getting fiscal complementing monetary policy. But here's the thing hasn't done much so far. Actually, the emerging markets that seem to be benefiting the most from all the stimulus in the developed countries. And Stifle Nicholas's Chad Morganlander adds that next year, global growth will probably decelerate. You get a probably global growth uh, GDP of about 3%. And yes, you will get some fiscal stimulus. Uh, the key thing to focus your attention on is will the Eurozone, uh, will they relief, relieve the fiscal compact, perhaps uh, be less fiscally disciplined in 2015. If that is the case, then perhaps you'll get some growth out of Europe. Now, that's a big guess. So let's not go with the guess. We believe that valuations in the United States are somewhat overvalued. Yes, we are still overweight equities because earnings here in the United States have been very good. Last quarter, up 7%, and we're also starting to see top-line growth. But credit dynamics and debt dynamics here in the United States, you know, on the consumer side and on the private side, are still well below trend. All right, let's bring in Barry Wood, our international economics correspondent. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Renita. So, Barry, what do you make of the conversation behind all of these different central bank moves? Well, I like the reference to the Jefferson Star. Oh, I knew you would. That one was for you. I don't know the extent to which monetary policy can continue to be effective. It's fascinating to think that the People's Bank of China is now really trying to use monetary policy to stimulate what they would call sluggish growth in China. I think the Europeans are stuck, as was said in uh, the tape that we just heard. I think here in the States, monetary policy has been very successful. But fiscal policy is going to be restrained, certainly in Europe, and it's uh, probably restrained here in North America and uh, in part of your your part of the world. I won't comment because I don't know it that well. All right. Okay, so uh, Barry, now uh, sort of switching gear a little bit to look at oil prices. These are now at uh, record lows, triggered in the last four months, of course, by an unprecedented, uh, unprecedented increase in oil production in the U.S. and exacerbated by weaker demand Uh, growth across the world, especially in Asia and Europe. So, of course, the big question then for this week is what will OPEC do about oil prices at their meeting? So, Barry, what do you think? Will they leave the situation as it is or stick to a $30 million uh, barrel per day ceiling or will they cut oil production? Well, I think they're stuck. They're, They're in a situation not unlike the European Central Bank of trying to balance lots of different interests. It's very hard for a lot of the poorer oil exporting nations that are members of OPEC to agree to production cuts because despite the low price, they need to ship oil to earn money. I think the Iranians who would like to do that are an outlier. They don't get along with the Saudis. I think the Saudis really control OPEC. But what you said, Renita, about what's happening here in the States is certainly very significant in the OPEC discussions. Here's U.S. oil imports from OPEC at a 30-year low. Here's domestic oil production at 9 million barrels a day, its highest since the 1980s. And 
the United States, this was never anticipated over the last five years. It has really been a game changer in terms of the oil market. Now, it's true, oil prices are pretty depressed. I'm looking at $77 a barrel on West Texas Intermediate, and most people are saying that, you know, the fracking business is not profitable at anything below $76. So I don't know where this is going, but we've had a 24% drop in oil prices in just the last four months. Okay, so I sense uh, sort of the tone of worry. When we talked about this a few weeks ago, we said, well, the good thing about oil prices remaining low is the fact that the consumer gets to save and, you know, what they save uh, they can use to go shopping with. So have things changed? No, I'm still in that camp. Renita, very much so. I think that this is a uh, tax cut for most Americans. And as your listeners know, the Americans drive a lot. And they're saving big time from what they were paying six months, 12 months ago, certainly going back three years. So that is more money in their pocket. We're coming up to Black Friday, the day after the Thanksgiving holiday. They spend money. And I suspect that we're going to see a lot of that money that's saved on fuel Uh, go right into the Christmas gift-buying season, which starts on Friday. So, Barry, what about the U.S. shale boom, uh, you know, which has sort of challenged the rules of the the global petroleum market? Could this, you know, be soon facing its own day of reckoning? If the oil price continues to decline, Renita, I think that is the case. But uh, let's face it, uh, this is uh, uncharted territory in one sense. We've had a precipitous decline, really because the global economy has, uh, has slowed down. And I don't think we're going to see a continued drop at the current pace below this $77 level. Now, if I'm wrong on that, then I think uh, the shale gas boom is certainly in jeopardy. And that is something that would affect global markets and probably put a floor on the oil price. All right, Barry, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I know it's a short week for you as you will be celebrating Thanksgiving. So eat plenty of turkey on our behalf here in Hong Kong. (laughs) Thank you, Renita. All right. A quick look at the numbers before we move to the next segment. Uh, Australia's ASX index is up 1.3% to 5,360. In currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.23 US dollars. Dollars. Excuse me. One US dollar will currently buy you 117 yen, and one pound sterling will buy you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 13 cents. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and real estate funds in Asia have scored well on a new survey that ranks compliance with international guidelines on reporting standards. Chris Oliver has the story. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Private real estate funds in Asia are doing more to be transparent. It's part of an effort to increase understanding and attract investors. We are joined now by Alan Dalgleish. He's chief executive of the Asian Association for Investors in Non-Listed Real Estate Vehicles. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chris. So uh, there's a recent survey out by PC, uh, PwC, and they found that overall compliance in Asia was relatively high with the guidelines set by European authority. Um, what, what, in general, what kind of information do you think investors are looking for from fund managers? 
Well, look, uh, in, investors are looking for um, uh, greater detail, uh, greater uh, – really, they're looking for greater transparency into these funds, and they're also looking for more timely reporting. Now, I, these funds are what's called non-listed. That means that they're private funds. Can you just take a moment to explain what that means? Yes, absolutely. Well, a good example would be um, we, we as, an, as a trade or industry association, represent institutional investors or large pension funds and fund managers who manage vehicles on their behalf. So um, a good example would be your pension pot is with, uh, let's say, a, a large Dutch investor. Uh, they will uh, make an allocation to a, an unlisted fund run by a fund manager let's say, uh, logistics in uh, Japan as a property sector um, and either as a closed-end or an open-ended fund uh, to generate returns which will eventually come back to the investor into the pension pot. So uh, around the region here, I see that Australia ranks fairly high. Uh, Japan has improved in terms of its compliance with standards. Uh, What else is of note? Is that the, the wider region, are they also improving in terms of their reporting? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think there's just uh, following the the global financial crisis, there's been a far greater uh, focus on this. Excuse me. I think it's also important to say that the industry itself has been uh, hasn't been waiting around for investors to uh, uh, sorry regulators to tell them what to do. Uh, We've been heavily engaged, uh, both uh, the institutional investors and the fund managers on the other side for several years, uh, predating the GFC. Okay, I'm going to invite Alex uh, to join in on this in Mm -hmm. a moment. Uh, But first off, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, PwC has highlighted a concern among investors about the underlying holdings in some of these funds. So that, I guess, means the properties that have been purchased through the funds, in some cases in third-tier cities and emerging markets such as China. So what is the risk that they're actually a bit overvalued now and could actually suffer, uh, I guess, a loss of capital value and a downturn? Well, uh, I think they're right to, to highlight some concerns. Um, I, I think the guidelines having been revised and, and re-launched uh, in uh, April uh, this year, the, there's much more narrative. So for an asset that is in a, a sort of peripheral location, um, the, it's not just a question of saying, well, here's, uh, here's the number, it's worth 50 million, whatever. Um, the, um, there's a lot more narrative and description around how that number is, is arrived at, which should give the investor a lot more comfort. So there's a push for uh, also uh, more detail on how regulations are changing, I guess, in terms of what's uh, allowed by fund managers to invest in some of these markets. Is that the case? Uh, yes, I mean I think in, in uh, general terms, uh, institutional investors are looking for a far, far greater degree of information from uh, everyone involved in the industry. All right, let me just ask you a question about the rate cycle. Uh, China's interest rate uh, cut on Friday notwithstanding, many people actually believe that interest rates are on the rise these days. Now, my understanding is that's generally bad for hard assets such as real estate. Uh, How do you counter that argument? Or how, how does your industry perceive that question? Well, look, um, the property markets are cyclical. I think it's uh, it's possible to construct a, 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 an argument that uh, we're post GFC, we're f- quite far through uh, the current cycle. Um, you know, I, again, it, it's extremely difficult to generalise. I think uh, a lot in terms of uh, rate rises and so on. I think uh, a lot's going to come down to the uh, specific bank's willingness to lend uh, to a particular uh, developer, um, and then the very much be focus on the, on the developer's own uh, portfolio and whatever other commitments they've got. 
Yeah, certainly uh, Asia's uh, valuations could continue to track higher if you're a watcher of things like a Mark Faber's outlook on the region. Um, I just want to ask you a question. When you look around the region, are there any particular markets that you like? Oh, look, um, uh, th- let me answer that sort of on, on behalf of our membership. Many, many of our members will typically invest in uh, Australia, in Japan, and in China. Um, these are very large institutional investors, pension funds, and sovereign wealth uh, groups. Um, it tends to really be uh, those three markets. Um, and I think, uh, oh, interesting, obviously, for different reasons. All right. Thank you very much uh, for joining us this morning. That's Alan Dalgleish. He's chief executive of a of a com- uh, of an agency called Anrev. That's uh, the uh, Asian uh, Association for Investors in Non Listed Real Estate Vehicles. And thank you, Chris, for that uh, great segment. A quick message from the Transport Department: Traffic. There are traffic queues on the Tolo highways, and they end at Yuan Chao Tsai. Traffic is congested now, and motorists are advised to drive with utmost care and patience, and pay attention to TV and radio announcements on traffic conditions. Well, as you know, Operation Santa Claus, uh, which is RTHK and SEMP's annual charity, is in full swing. And uh, today we welcome Joe Hall to the program. Joe is the regional manager of merchandise and marketing at Toys R Us Asia. And she's here to talk about their involvement in this holiday charity effort. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Renita. So, Joe, is this the first time that Toys R Us has donated to Operation Santa Claus? Yes, it is. Um, Obviously, Christmas is a very important time for giving and nothing could be closer to our hearts than uh, uh, being the world's biggest toy retailer. But we did feel that Operation Santa Claus offered us uh, a natural fit with our own values and provides a unique platform for giving back to our communities right here in Hong Kong. Yes, certainly as the world's biggest uh, toy retailer, it's... You're synonymous with Santa Claus yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Okay. So why did you specifically choose this particular charity effort when, you know, certainly there's so much out there, you know, uh, that is up for offer and that you could contribute to? Absolutely. We hugely admire the breadth of charitable organizations who are going to benefit from Operation Santa Claus. And I think also um, this effort galvanizes institutions, businesses and people from all walks of life behind one common goal – And we're hugely proud to be part of this terrific effort. And what specifically will you be doing, besides, of course, donating the money? You've got some initiatives at the store? Absolutely. Uh, We're supporting in a number of ways. Um, Obviously, this is the busiest time of the year for us, and we're providing a free gift wrapping service in all of our 15 stores across Hong Kong. And at these gift wrapping stations, our customers can learn more about Operation Santa Claus and also make their own donation. How do they do that? Do you have signs or do you have people talking about it at the gift wrapping stations? Absolutely. There's signs, there's posters, there's leaflets. And we're also leveraging all of our communication channels um, behind this huge effort so that we can promote and cascade the charity across all of our communication channels. Now, the gift wrapping service, is that something new for this year? Or is that something that happens anyway at this time of year? Um, we, we do offer this service. It's the first time that we've um, supported Operation Santa Claus, and we're very, very proud to do it. All right. Alex, what do you think uh, about uh, Toys R Us's very big contribution here? 
Oh yes, of course uh, they are the the, the biggest uh, name in this industry, and of course uh, I think they would draw a lot of attention to this to this program actually. Okay, so aside from your your donation at large and your you know specific uh, uh, efforts across your communication channels in the store, will you be participating in any of uh, Radio Three or the SEMP's specific uh, uh, charity efforts? You know, night by night. <laughs> Absolutely. Our colleagues are participating in the charity run, the 15K, and I'll be doing that myself as well. So, um, as I say, it's an opportunity uh, to mobilize all of our teams across our, the diverse elements of our business behind one common goal, and all of our colleagues are very happy to support this great effort. Well, uh, Joe, you look incredibly fit, so I think you're going to be right up there at the lead, you know, for the run. Uh, may I also invite you, perhaps, uh, and all of our listeners to the holiday quiz night, which we will be held on Monday, December 8th, and that's going to be held in the evening at Grappa Cellar. We'll have more information about that on the Radio 3 website later today, uh, but we're going to have, a, you know, a number of teams sort of going head-to-head in a very, very fun holiday quiz. So, Alex, I hope you are rounding up your team. Are you? Oh, I'm sorry that I'm engaged in th- that oh, evening. Dear, but, yeah. dear. Can't count on these people, you know, these money for nothing girls. It's just nothing. <laughs> um, but we'd love to have a team from Toys R Us, Joe. Okay, no problem. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us on Money for Nothing this morning. That is Joe Hall, who is the Regional Manager for Merchandise and Marketing, Toys R Us Asia. So a quick look at the numbers. Uh, Australia's ASX uh, index is up 1.19% to 5,355. Seoul's Kospi is up uh, eight-tenth of a percent to 1,981. Brent crude oil is currently at $80.38. And gold is at $1,201.10. So we've got uh, just a minute or so left. Alex, what should we be looking out for later this week in finance of course this week uh, we we are seeing the reaction of uh, the um, uh, market to the, the way cut in China I think uh, probably we, we would see some uh, initial uh, boom but uh, later on I think uh, we probably we would we would uh, consolidate and wait for the latest number uh, of course this week uh, would be quiet because of defense giving in the US so uh, don't be too excited uh, in the initial rise of this week and I think uh, probably people uh, would would consolidate and 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 wait and and the latest number from China next week. Yeah, don't be too excited by the boom that we might see. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining us as guest host this morning. That is Alex Wong, Director of Asset Management at Ample Capital. And thank you to Chris Oliver, our producer, for his efforts. I'm Renita Malhotra-Hura, wrapping up Money for Nothing this morning. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we close up the show. Today will be mainly fine. Uh, The visibility will be relatively low later on. The maximum temperature will be around 25 degrees Celsius with moderate easterly winds. Currently, the temperature is 22 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 88%. Now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Five of the nine firefighters hurt in a gas explosion in Shekhip May on Saturday remain in a critical condition in hospital. The Chief Secretary Carrie Lamb visited the injured firefighters yesterday and said the government would provide them with all assistance necessary. Meanwhile, the Director of Fire Services, Lam Wei Hin, says a special investigative committee is looking into the cause of the explosion at Shekhip May Estate and what led to there being so many casualties. One person died in the blast and a total of 12 people were injured.
The United States has told Iran it's time to consider extending today's deadline for a deal on Tehran's nuclear program. Officials say the Secretary of State John Kerry made the proposal to Iran's foreign minister during negotiations in Vienna. Six nations, the US, Russia, UK, China, Germany and France, want Iran to curb its nuclear program in return for the lifting of UN sanctions. The British Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond said the priority was still to try to bridge the gap by today. At the moment, we're focused on the last push, a big push tomorrow morning to try and get this across the line. Of course, uh, if we're not able to do it, we'll then look at where we go from there. But at the moment, everybody's talking about how we are going to try and bridge that gap and move things forward tomorrow with the Iranians. Police in the U.S. city of Cleveland have shot and killed a 12-year-old boy in a playground who'd been waving around what turned out to be a fake gun. Radio Australia's Lisa Miller reports. Police in Ohio were responding to an emergency call about a youth pointing a gun in a playground. Deputy Police Chief Ed Toomba said his officers told him to drop the weapon. The officers ordered him to... Uh to stop and to show his hands and he went into his waistband and uh, pulled out the weapon. The 12-year-old was African-American but his family is downplaying racial connotations. The shooting comes as residents in Ferguson, Missouri wait anxiously for a decision there on whether a police officer will be charged over the death of a black teenager in August. A suicide bomber has attacked a volleyball match in eastern Afghanistan, killing at least 14